Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, just in the last minute, I'm looking at something that I haven't seen in a long time, and that is all three major indices lower. The Nasdaq has just turned lower now and is down a tenth of a percent. Of course, the S&P down a quarter of a percent, and the Dow has been down about a half a percent. But still, we're talking very, very small down. Let's bring in somebody who knows a lot about records in stock market action. Matt Maley is Managing Director and Chief Market Strategist at Miller Tayback and he joins us from Newton, Massachusetts today. Matt, we're down today but we're down very, very small. Do we hold on to these records even as we wait for another stimulus round? You know, it's 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 funny because this rally has been seems to be waning a little bit in the last uh, uh, couple of days. Even though you know, we, each day we seem to try to test the the all time high in the S and P, and this morning we got above the uh, intraday uh, all time high. But uh, even when we reached that intraday all time high an hour forty five minutes ago, the the uh, breadth, the advances versus decliners were actually negative, and we've seen that kind of uh, the, the, that breadth. Uh, you know, pulling back recently, volume has dropped off considerably, and so people, I think, are a little bit nervous as we're making this new high. It's kind of a a, a point where people can step back and say, "Geez, you know, we're up 50 percent in just five months. We have, uh, you know, valuations, even though that's a lousy timing tool, valuations above 20 times earnings. Uh, it's it gives people a little bit a reason to pause. And to be honest with you, if we did pull back from here, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. I mean, pauses, uh, pullbacks, are, and even corrections are normal and healthy in any market. So, Matt, one of the the, uh, the characteristics of this rally off the bottom is its total lack of breath. It's been driven by, you know, six or seven names. And if you pull those names out, uh, we're actually down 4% uh, year over year. How concerned are you about that lack of breath um, just from a market, you know, maybe just a stability, a technical perspective? Yeah, there's no question. I mean, a lot of people are, you know, each <laughs> people are saying, well, geez, these stocks deserve to be moving higher. And, and that's true uh, to a certain degree. But it also tells us that the overall economy, the breadth of the economy is not as strong as, as some people would like to think. And therefore, it's, I guess my point is every time we get a narrow rally, people come up with excuses why it's, uh, it's, it's actually nothing to worry about. Uh, but each time it seems to be something that people should have worried about. And we do see uh, a pullback of some sort of sub so, Matt, a lot of people have been talking about cyclicals and, you know, a rotation into cyclicals, but are we really going to see a rotation in this market action? We talk about, you know, the five stocks being the, the biggest part of the composition of, say, the S&P 500 even. And it seems to me that even if we do have a rotation, it's going to be so small that it's going to be barely noticeable. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And of course, one of the things that that, that I worry about, uh, and again, it, it's it's funny because I'm, I've actually become more constructive on the market on a longer term basis, but near term, uh, we definitely look like we're getting ripe for a pullback. And one of those reasons goes to the, what you just uh, mentioned, Vani, is that when you talk about how well can some of these um, and you know uh, cyclicals do if we get another round of uh, another wave in the coronavirus i mean we've seen these kind of whether it's a second wave or, or a second half of, of the first wave the weather hasn't gotten cold yet and what we've seen from australia and new zealand and other places in the southern hemisphere as the weather got colder they did see a new wave in fact in australia it was worse than the first one so uh, if we get that kind of thing and, and and we get some sort of a lockdown I, I don't think it'll be anywhere near as severe as the last one but if we get some kind of a, a semi uh, 
lockdown, and we're already seeing that with the school, with the, some of the colleges, uh, that's going to make it tough for some of these cyclical stocks to rally in the way that some people think they will. All right, so we still have the pandemic risk out there. Give us a sense of the political risk. Uh, big, big, big election coming up in November. How are you factoring that in? Well, the, you know, the market's not factoring in at all right, right, right now. And one of the things, I mean, on two things. Number one, you know, long term, as uh, is, is a lot of people will point out, that the Democrats have actually been better for, for the stock market or, uh, and more, 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 more often than not, uh, although certainly President Trump has been, uh, uh, as a GOP uh, president, has been very positive for the stock market. But, but on, a, on a near-term basis, you look at it, where, what's the starting point? The starting point right now, as we're moving towards the election, as we get past these c- conventions and really move into the election, election season, the market is at an all-time high. It's overbought on a technical basis. It's expensive on a fundamental basis. So if we start to see that, that, uh, that uh, President Biden, especially if we talk about, you think about Elizabeth Warren maybe being uh, you know, in, in charge of the Treasury Department or in charge of even the Justice Department, that will have a negative impact on certain aspects of the marketplace. So, uh, and, and especially if it looks like the Democrats are going to have a full sweep. I think that uh, a longer term, it may not be the worst thing in the world, but near term, with the market the way it is, it, people are going to have to start to factor that in. And that's another reason why I'm more cautious on the near-term uh, prospects for the market. Matt, what would you do about banks right now? You've always had such strong thoughts on the banks, but they're really in the doldrums. Yeah, it's really uh, a concern. And when you get somebody like uh, Warren Buffett, who uh, obviously he's been, you know, we, we've heard all the news about him upping his position uh, in Bank America, but then we find out he's, he's pulling him back in a lot of other areas. It's still a concern for me. And now, even though interest rates have moved up a little bit uh, in the last week or so, uh, they're not going to go up a lot higher, even if, they, even if they stabilize up at this kind of slightly higher level. But the other thing that really concerns me is I continue to watch these European banks. You look at the European bank index, it's rolling back over again from a pretty low level already. I mean, they've been underperforming for quite some time now. And it just shows there's the, that there's some stress on the overall banking system. And I think it shows, you know, concerns about, you know, whether we're going to have, uh, you know, the situation with uh, bankruptcies, will they pick up uh, as, as right. we get past the, uh, the, the uh, political questions? Matt Maley, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate they, uh, appreciate that. Matt Maley, Managing Director and Chief Market Strategist for Miller Tabeck, joining us on the phone from Massachusetts. Uh, yeah, Vani, it, I'm glad you brought up the banks because they just can't seem to get out of their way here. Uh, and yet they have a whole a myriad of issues you have to deal with, as Matt suggested, those low rates and the potential write-offs. It's amazing because they're one of the areas that didn't rally ever, yeah. even when people were saying, look, they're, they're way undervalued here. Yeah, exactly. So a whole host of issues that they have to deal with. So we'll look forward to those earnings uh, next quarter. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. We are joined today by Bloomberg Opinion columnist Sarah Halzak. She covers retail for Bloomberg. She's based in Washington, D.C. Sarah, a busy day today for you. Uh, Thanks for joining us. We had Walmart, Home Depot, Kohl's all reporting earnings today. It seems like Walmart, Home Depot, they're kind of seeing some benefit here from changing buying habits, but Kohl's, not so much. What are your key takeaways? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, All of us are spending so much more time in our homes, and that clearly has been a benefit to Home Depot. People have taken on uh, renovation projects they wouldn't have otherwise if they didn't suddenly have to have a home office, for example, or they're pulling forward renovation projects that maybe they were planning to do a year or two down the road. And so comparable sales growth there, a booming 23%. Um, And Walmart also benefited from all these dramatic changes to our lifestyle. Not only are people cooking more at home, but again, uh, trying to 
trick out their backyards to make spending time at home more valuable um, and enjoyable, sporting goods, that kind of thing. And so uh, th- those two uh, held up fairly well in the quarter. But Kohl's, you know, consistent with what we saw in the Commerce Department retail sales numbers last week, uh, clothing just continues to be a real weak spot. People are just not spending money in that product category. And that showed up in the weak results for Kohl's in the quarter. Now, that's something that you might anticipate because there are no events to go to. There's very little entertaining at home and so on. So clothes, you can understand. But can Walmart and Home Depot keep up these figures even as stimulus recedes? Because, you know, there was that $1,200 check and then there were extra unemployment insurance payments, but they've gone away for the moment. Yes, and I think that's a real risk, and I think that's why you're not seeing their stocks really pop on these results this morning, even though they beat expectations. Walmart cited repeatedly in its earnings materials that the government stimulus was a real boon for it in the quarter, that uh, when you saw those checks uh, in early May and June, that that was clearly propping up spending in general merchandise categories. And as we got deeper into July, they said spending basically normalized, sales normalized. And so I think uh, investors are looking at these results and seeing a real risk that if Congress doesn't do more uh, to support consumers, uh, that this strength is simply not going to be replicated. And Sarah, you wrote a fantastic column today uh, just on this issue that uh, you really hope that the folks in Congress uh, are taking a look at some of these uh, numbers that are being released today. And, and more importantly, listen to some of the commentary by these CEOs about what they're seeing in terms of future demand. It would suggest that maybe they better get moving. Yes, exactly. I think uh, if we don't see uh, you know any progress out of Washington soon, it could be really destructive. You had some of them, uh, executives, offering color about how the back-to-school shopping season is going so, so far, and it's not going great. Uh, I think choppy was the word used on the Walmart call, uh, and understandably so, right? So many parents don't even know if their child is going to be going back to school in person or virtually and don't even know exactly what supplies to buy. You know, do you need a laptop or do you need a backpack? Um, All of those spending decisions are kind of on ice right now. Um, And so against that backdrop and with the unemployment rate as high as it is, uh, it's just really hard to see how the back-to-school season and the really crucial holiday season sets up well for these retailers if Congress doesn't take some action. Are retailers changing the mix of what's available in their stores? So, for example, is Walmart, you know, getting rid of the backpacks just in case there won't be as much demand? Is it putting in more leisure wear? Yeah, Cole talked about this a bit on its earnings call this morning, that it definitely is going to shift its assortment to focus more on comfy clothes, um, on home products, because people are still spending a lot on kitchen appliances and that kind of thing, Um, really shifting its assortment to those product categories. Uh, where people are still spending money. Kohl's also talked about cutting the total number of items that it offers. So it said by the holiday season, it expects its SKU count or the number of individual items that it sells to be down 40%. Um, and instead to really focus on um, a few key items that it thinks can sell really well and buying really deep into those particular items. So I think that's a change you can expect to see uh, when you're in stores in fall and winter. Sarah, do you have the sense that retailers in general, whether it's a Kohl's or a Home Depot, um, can continue to invest in their digital businesses? Because it just seems like the money that Amazon continues to invest in its e-commerce business, whether it's fulfillment and distribution centers or, or just te- technology in general, is just, just outstanding. And it's almost hard to replicate 
how about these other retailers? What are they doing in terms of investing in, in their uh, you know, e-commerce businesses? So what all three of these retailers are trying to do is leverage their store footprint, kind of turn it into not an albatross, but a help in this digital era. And one key uh, approach to doing that is to invest in curbside pickup. Um, particularly since the pandemic, this has become a really popular format, especially in the suburbs where these stores tend to have, you know, big sprawling parking lots and it's easy to kind of pull up uh, in your car, never get out, have someone drop your items in your trunk or your back seat. Um, so they're really investing in making those services work well. And that's more complicated than you might think because they have to think about how to allocate in-store labor to pick those orders for you quickly. And they have to think about the technological experience of how you can safely we let them know, hey, I'm outside and I want you to bring those items to my car now. And so I think that's where you're going to see a lot of investment from all of these retailers. Pickup uh, for Home Depot has always skewed to be quite a large percentage of their digital sales overall. And so I think you'll continue to see all of them lean into making that a good experience and a way to differentiate themselves from Amazon, which simply doesn't have a lot of brick and mortar outposts from which to do that. So Sarah, how do the peers of those retailers that have been successful differentiate themselves to also be successful? So for example, Lowe's, how does Lowe's get some market share from Home Depot? And when it comes to Walmart, obviously there's, there's well, there's, there's no one like Walmart, but there's a plethora of Dollar Generals and so on. Sure. Uh, I think Walmart, you know, the, its advantage is always that everyday low price focus. Um, you know, Target is clearly a, co- a close competitor. And I think Walmart needs to focus on leveraging its muscle with uh, suppliers and vendors right now uh, to keep making sure it offers the lowest prices and that it continues to win on that metric, particularly as we are heading in, or as we're in a recession that doesn't look to be letting up anytime soon. Shoppers will become more value focused. And so price will be an important point of differentiation. I think Lowe's, the focus in winning relative to Home Depot there, it's interesting. Typically, Lowe's uh, store footprint is thought of as a disadvantage because it's not, uh, its stores tend to be located in more suburban and rural areas as opposed to in dense urban areas where Home Depot tends to be more concentrated. Um, But that might not be such a disadvantage right now if folks in Uh, those in rural and suburban areas are more willing to visit a physical store compared to those in urban areas. So kind of leveraging that uh, could be a lever for Lowe's to pull. And I expect we'll kind of see that in its results, its two key results when they come out tomorrow. Sarah Holzak, with all of the answers, no wonder she's in Washington, D.C. I hope they listen to her down there. Sarah Holzak is columnist with Bloomberg Opinion on retail primarily, but uh, turns her hand to a lot of topics. Well, the housing market is the one area of this economy that continues to show real strength across the board. Uh, just last month, home sales jumped a wreck 21%. Uh, so obviously, low interest, low mortgage rates are a key driver. Let's see what else is driving this market. We welcome Sherry Chris, president and CEO of Realology Expansion Brands Portfolio. That includes Better Homes and Gardens, Real Estate, and ERA, uh, based in Madison, New Jersey. Sherry, thanks so much for joining us here. So again, the residential housing market, very, very strong. What are the key drivers that you think are pushing that uh, that market? Well, Paul, it's, it's interesting because, uh, first of all, there's a pent-up demand uh, from April and May due to COVID. And people that would normally be moving couldn't move during that time or couldn't look during that time. So that two months of 
inactivity has uh, has caused a demand. But there are other things as well. There's a lot of uh, migration patterns that are happening across the country where people are uh, consumers are exiting large cities for outlying areas. Um, consumers want to buy a different type of home, things like that. So it's not really driven by people having to move, which is typical of the past. It's more people want to move now. So I am absolutely fascinated by this data that shows that suburban areas are seeing, you know, anything that comes to market snapped up. Do people really have that much savings set aside, you know, to to put together a mortgage? Are they getting what they thought they would get for their houses or their condos or their op- apartments in the cities, Sherry? Well, Bonnie, some people are buying without selling their existing home. They're renting out their property. And when we think about the mortgage rates being at such a low, historical low, and the fact that, you know, with the average sale price um, hovering around 300000 now, it doesn't take much for people to, you know, put that 20% down or less and and buy a home. So we're not talking millions of dollars. And, uh, you know, I don't know this for a fact, and you may know better, but I think at the beginning of COVID, people started liquidating certain assets. Cash mm-hmm. was something that they wanted to have, and now they're looking for a home. And the housing market has, you know, it's really exploded over the last couple of months. So is this, how much of this is being driven, do you think, by the exodus from maybe more densely populated areas like like Manhattan, for example, Um and people really do just looking to get out of a city-type environment and get to more suburban area. Part of it is, but not not all of it. I mean, if we think about the two cities that are, uh, you know, having that problem right now, Manhattan, obviously, one, and San Francisco is another one, where there are a lot of uh, very popular outlying areas that people could move to. And now that Many of the large uh, companies, including ours, uh, you know, we're not opening our headquarters anytime soon. But if you look at the West Coast uh, with Facebook, Google, Twitter, et cetera, and all of those employees are working from home, they don't need to live in the Bay Area anymore. And the same is true with Manhattan. Yeah, exactly. And Sherry, the fact that housing starts are up 22.6% month over month, and obviously they were up 17.5% the month previously. I know that's partially because everything got shut down so much back in March or April. But where are these starts? Are builders now sort of changing their ideas on what to build, where to build, and what's the bare minimum necessary? Like, are people demanding, for example, at least a bit of a garden? Well, people are demanding, and uh, through Better Homes and Gardens, the magazine, which we're affiliated with, uh, we did a number of consumer surveys during COVID. And one of the things that, uh, you know, came out loud and clear is that people are looking for uh, properties that have, um, you know, the possibility of an extended outdoor space, um, a front porch, um, a different type of living area, uh, places where their children can study, uh, where, you know, both spouses can work in offices. And so the configuration is different. But when you think about the builders, I think the builders are taking more of a calculated risk right now because they're seeing, you know, what definitely is a pent-up demand in the housing industry, and uh, they are they're moving forward. We only have a four-month supply of listings. So that's causing a backlog right now where people who – 
would like to move and buy a new home are hesitant to put their existing home on the market because there's nothing to buy. Sherry, just an indulgence for me, given that you're affiliated with uh, that magazine, Better Homes and Gardens uh, Real Estate, obviously. What is the one thing that people are most buying? Is it flowers? Is it patio furniture? And if it is, what kind of patio furniture? Oh, that's a great question, Bonnie. Um, What people want to do is extend their living area into an outdoor space. So it's patio furniture to dine outside. Um, It's outdoor kitchens are very popular. And so if you think about moving your kitchen and dining room outdoors, uh, it just extends your space, particularly as we're continuing to somewhat isolate at home, you want to enjoy where you're living. And one of the things that we found anecdotally um, in talking to, you know, our many brokers and agents and consumers across the country is that when people were inside for an extended period of time, you know, you start looking at the faults uh, of your home and uh, that causes you to want to either make changes or or get outside. Sherry, thank you so much for joining us today. Sherry Chris is president and CEO of RealG Expansion Brands Portfolio, which includes Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate. Josh Dietz joins us. He's Senior Portfolio Manager at Aberdeen Standard Investments. And Josh, we've been talking about the market and how we're at, you know, all-time highs, which really boggles the mind, given that people are just suffering out there, except for, you know, the top of the top 1%. What do you make of it? Why is the market fundamentally making highs? I think the real reason for that is because there's no other place really to invest. When you look at interest rates and how low they are in the 10-year, you get less than 1% for investing there. So I think people are viewing this as the only alternative right now. In addition, we've just seen massive stimulus by governments in the U.S. and in Europe, and then the Fed and ECB throwing so much money at this problem. So um, there's so much liquidity in the system, and I believe it's been driving up the stock market. So, Josh, talk to us about the infrastructure space here. Are, are, give us the sense of what's, what the pandemic has meant to infrastructure investing. Have people just kind of pulled back the reins, pulled back the money to see what happens, or is it still moving forward? So it depends on um, which subsector within infrastructure, and certainly governments and local governments are facing um, budget deficits and issues. But we actually believe there's a lot of opportunity within the infrastructure space, both on the public and private side. And part of that is from stimulus packages um, for because of COVID, in addition to the fact that you just see certain sectors are prime for growth. And I'll give you one example. To start in the communications sector, right? We all know because of the pandemic how important it is to have that broadband connection to it. Um, because people are working from home, kids are on Zoom school from home, and that just spotlights how important it is. It's basically become as an essential utility to that. So we were excited about the communication sector prior to because of the transition to 5G, and now COVID has just put a spotlight on it. You know, you think about what's happened over the past 20 years, how we've trained, all transitioned from landlines to cell phones to smartphones, and the next wave of technology is 5G, and we believe that invested in cellular towers, which so those are those large steel structures that lease space on the steel towers, are the essential component, um, infrastructure component that will allow the 5G to actually happen and grow. 
Huh. So that's one area. And then there's also, of course, you know, energy and green energy. Well, how much time do you spend wondering what will happen if President Trump wins for a second term, given particularly that we saw yesterday, for example, that he's going to allow Arctic drilling going go ahead? So he's been president for about three and a half years now, and we still see a tremendous growth in the renewable sector. And that's not only happening in the U.S., it's happening throughout the globe. You know, the EU passed the largest stimulus package since the Marshall Plan with a focus on um, climate change. So there are great opportunities to invest in renewables, and that's going to continue to happen because not only it's good for the environment, but it now also makes economic sense. As the cost of solar and wind are on par with carbon-emitting alternatives in some geographies, so and we believe it's going to the next catalyst for renewable energy is storage, and storage costs have come down about 85 percent over the last decade. It's expected to come down another 40 percent over the next five years. But if you think about how important that is, if you have a solar farm and the sun is shining during the day, and now you could store that energy and use it at night, it makes that infrastructure asset even more valuable. So we believe regardless of who wins the election, renewables are a great place to invest over the next 10 years or so. Well, how about if President Trump is successful in opening up the Arctic, would you be investing in some of those projects up there? Um, we probably would not be um, investing. We generally don't, for an infrastructure investment, we're not looking to take speculative views on commodity prices or the EMT side of it. So we're really looking for the more stable, predictable cash flows um, in our infrastructure investment. Do you look outside the U.S. as well, Josh? I mean, Europe is pretty much ahead of us in many ways, particularly when it comes to broadband and 5G and towers and so on. Well, so it's interesting. I wouldn't, um, We do invest globally, and Europe is an important part of it. In some ways, we're actually ahead of them. So if you think about the tower sector, in the United States, 95% of the towers are owned by independent tower companies. In Europe, it's only about 20 to 25%. So there are great opportunities. We like a company called Cellnex, which is consolidating that right now. So you'll get the orga- natural organic growth as data is growing 30 to 40%, um, as we're all using more bandwidth-intensive applications on our phones. Plus, you'll get the inorganic growth as the cell phone companies are going to sell off their tower assets, as we've seen here in the United States, and that's beginning to happen in Europe. So here in the States, it seems like infrastructure spending is fairly bipartisan. What do you expect to see out of Washington, no matter who's, which administration is in the White House over the next uh, couple of years, as you know, we try to get this economy on the other side of this pandemic, try to get this economy uh, develop, uh, growing again? And I think that's an important point you make. I believe that's the only issue that both the Democrats and Republicans agree on, is that we need to spend more on infrastructure. So I think regardless of who wins, we could see infrastructure spending. But what I will say is when we look to invest at Aberdeen, specifically, we're looking for currently right now what are the opportunities. And once and if there is an actual infrastructure stimulus package, to me that's a free call option for our investment. So we believe that when and if that will happen, it will just enhance the value of the investments we're currently making. So, Josh, we never did get the infrastructure week. So what makes you so convinced that there will be something like that next time around, no matter who the president is, and that there will be money left? Because the Treasury is issuing so much right now just to keep the economy from going too far underwater 
why would they, you know, issue more money for an infrastructure sort of spend? Totally agree, and that's a great point, and that's why I said initially, any investment we make is based on the environment we see right now, and if something does happen, it's a free call option. But the point you make is that the governments don't have enough money, the local and federal governments, to spend on infrastructure, so we believe they will use more private capital to invest on infrastructure. We saw that in Europe during the last financial crisis, and we believe that could happen in the United States, and we have seen some more privatizations. PPP, public-private partnerships, have actually increased about 10x over the last decade. So we think there's great opportunity if you're investing in both public and private infrastructure. Josh Dietz, thanks so much for joining us. We certainly appreciate it, Josh Dietz, Senior Portfolio Manager, Aberdeen Asset Management. They have $645 billion in assets under management. Uh, Vani, you may not know this, but the, the real infrastructure play, the only one I'm focused on is this gateway project that kind of upgrade the Northeast Transit uh, Railroad so we can get more trains in and out of the city. That was a crucial thing before the pandemic, but maybe not so much after it if everybody's working from home. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.